The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is the multiple New York Times bestselling author and the founder of the Strengths Revolution, Marcus Buckingham. He's a sought-after speaker, and he currently serves as the head of people and performance at ADP's Research Institute. Special thanks to my brother, Mike Hennessy, at ADP, who made the connection to Marcus. And in our conversation, Marcus touches on several things, positive psychology, what's right with people, his life's work, measuring everything to do with the human condition, how we create loveless workplaces, and it's the topic of his current book, Love and Work, problems with measuring potential, performance ratings, does your company deserve the best talent? He also talks about how his group built a tool to measure the employee's experience with HR inside organizations, some surprising results, how to let people go, the challenges of measuring inclusion in DEI, and also an interesting fact about Marcus that I don't think many people have heard. That comes towards the end. Very interesting to talk to Marcus. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Next up on the podcast is the CHRO of Eversoner, Fred Skinner. And now, our conversation with Marcus Buckingham. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Thanks for having me, Dave. Really excited to interview you. I've been a big fan of your work, and I love the positivity of everything that you bring to the world of work and talent. And some of it not intuitive for many of us. We tend to look at weaknesses first and look at faults, and you come at it at a very different angle. Before we get into some of the details, maybe you could share an early life moment that kind of informed who you've become as a professional, as a leader. I was reading social psychology at university. This was uh, back in 1775. And back then, but also still yet today, most psychology is focused on pathology. It's focused on psychosis and neurosis and deviant behavior. And, and that's great. We need to understand all of those things. But my dad actually was in human resources and he was the chief human resources person for a 7,000 pub company. And you have to find really good pub managers. I was sort of slogging through socio-psychological issues of early childhood trauma at school. And dad brought this chap over. His name was Dr. Donald Clifton from Lincoln, Nebraska. Many people now know Don because him and Marty Seligman and Mike Chekshamahai and all those folks really kicked off positive psychology in the late 80s. But at the time, it was all brand new. And what Don sat around the dinner table saying was, we need to be able to study what's right with people. Not that we shouldn't also understand what's wrong with them, but you can't infer what's right with them from studying what's wrong with them. That excellence is not the opposite of failure. You learn a lot about failure from studying failure. You don't learn a lot about excellence. You learn a lot about divorce from studying divorce. You learn nothing about marriage. It's kind of a weird mind shift. My father had actually brought Don over to say, can we find out what all the best pub managers have in common? And then can we build an instrument to select more pub managers like the best, which I thought was kind of interesting coming from a company in Lincoln, Nebraska that had never even been in a pub. But they had a rigorous methodology. And of course, Don was a, a genius. And so I remember sitting around that dinner table going, I want to go study at this person's feet and begin the applied science of studying what's right with people. I was really lucky, you know, I was sort of 17 or 18 at the time, yet it's become 
the talisman for my entire career, really. That's really exciting. How would you summarize your career? A pure joy every day. No, yeah. just kidding. Um, <laughs> by background, I'm a psychometrician. I measure things about people that are really important that you can't count. You can count height, you can count weight, you can count sales, you can count lost work days. But what about empathy? What about ego? What about competitiveness? What about your level of engagement? What about your level of resilience? How do you measure those? So really, my entire career has been focused on, well, what are the reliable ways to measure things about humans that are really interesting and important both to them and to their teams, but that you can't count? How do you do that? Pre-employment, after someone's on board, while they're a member of a team, when they're going through the challenges of a pandemic and we need to understand their resilience, the I of D, E and I, how do you measure inclusion? By the way, there's no way to do that at the moment. So pretty much everything to do with the human condition at work that's really important that you can't count. That's really been my focus for for 25 years. And of course, today we're living in a world where the barrier to making content is so low, not to say that there's a bunch of opinion out there that isn't jolly interesting and good, but what do we know from data? What do we know from science? Do all the best leaders share the same four skills? Uh, No, they don't. What does data say about that? Does every single salesperson have exactly the same talents as every other really good salesperson? No, they don't. So let's go with the data in the real world, and then we can draw inferences from that rather than just, I think that. Some of the things that your research has shown that are not intuitive to a lot of us, that people don't want feedback, ratings don't work, performance discussions are often ineffective, there aren't high potentials and low potentials, they don't exist. Yeah, the other thing I saw you talk about is side gigs are okay. And maybe just talk about that right off the bat. We've built loveless workplaces. We know that when you're in love with someone, there is a really powerful kind of chemical cocktail in your brain of oxytocin and vasopressin and anandamide, the joy chemical. And those things actually turn you into a smarter person. You remember details better. You're more generous. You're more resilient. It it dysregulates your neocortex and sort of opens you up. Barbara Fredrickson says it's a broadening and building as opposed to fear, which narrows your focus. Fear is good under certain sets of circumstances. Well, the same is true, funnily enough, when you're doing something in flow. Mike Shekhar-Mahai, as you may know, introduced the idea of that excellence and flow are very tightly linked. And when you're doing something at excellence, you just get into this stepless world where you're just kind of in the zone and you vanish into it. When you look at the chemical cocktail in people's brains when that's going on, it looks almost exactly the same as when they're in love with someone. So doing something that you love makes you smarter. Uh, we always say, you know, do what you love and you'll never have to work it in your life. That's not true. We're, You study highly successful people. They don't do all that they love. But finding some things that they love to do every day seems to be incredibly important. Therefore, for many, many, many of us, if we want to talk about resilience, if we want to talk about burnout, if we want to talk about thriving, we have to talk about love. The threshold seems to be about 20 percent. Can you fill your day with 20 percent of activities that you love, that you vanish into? If your job, for whatever reason, is a job that you're just doing for the money and you've got to find some side gig, And that side gig is some activities, those things that for whatever reason lift you up. Your life that has more love in it is a better life. You're smarter, you're more resilient, you're more engaged, you're more creative, you're more collaborative. We've built loveless workplaces. We've built many, many jobs, uh, housekeeping jobs and warehouse jobs, even teaching jobs as though people won't like them. And then we wonder why people don't like them. Um, (laughs) And so that's why for people to have side gigs, for them to continue to scavenge for love, for which particular activities do I love? 
Can I have more of them in my life? Ideally, Dave, you know, you'd have loved to have had a 10 year curriculum at school where people taught you how to use the raw material of life to discover that which you love. We don't do that. Right. When you've got love, you dysregulate your neocortex, you open your mind up to new ideas, new innovations and more resilience. That's just the way humans work. Right. That's for sure. I love the way you talk about that high potentials and low potentials don't exist. Could you just share a little bit for those that haven't heard you talk about that? It just sounds so good, doesn't it? To say, well, people have potential and some people have a lot of it. And that people that have a lot of it, they take it with them wherever they go. They get named high potentials. About 15% of the American workforce is named a high potential. And it's almost like they got a big bucket. And in the bucket is a bunch of green stuff. And the green stuff is, is potential. And this potential is, is context and job independent. You take it with you wherever you go. You're always, oh, well, she's a hypo. Megan's a hypo. Megan can go wherever she wants and she'll get more opportunities and more training and a coach and a mentor. She'll get more forgiveness if things don't go quite well. Why? Because well, she's a hypo. Um, <laughs> and then everybody else is a, is a lopo, is a lopo, or maybe even a nopo. Like their bucket has a hole in it and all the green stuff is drained out. Well, I know why we did the hypo thing is we wanted to sort of invest in good people. But what that implies is that there is a thing that enables Megan, in this case, to learn more and have a greater upside in terms of her growth and development than everybody else because she's a hypo. And yet from a psychometric standpoint, you try to measure a thing called potential that is independent of any particular role that Megan is playing. You can't find it. There's no such thing. We know the brain retains a lot of its plasticity throughout the course of your life. So everyone can grow and get better. It's not as though some people can grow and get better more than other people and they're the hypos that's not the way of it at all it's a, so that it's a terrible sort of apartheid thing to say that 15 percent of our workforce is hypos and everyone else is oh dear and in fact it's deeply destructive and makes hr look really stupid because you're consigning 85 percent of your working population to stasis and that's actually devastating and immoral the implications of it as we run down through these huge human capital management systems, as you know, Dave, I mean, these things that run our lives. And for many people, they have not had the futures that they deserve, the careers they deserve, because they got given the wrong label on their back. It's still pretty sticky, it seems like. Uh, you still see a lot of organizations use the nine box and high potentials, and it's a slow migration away from it, it seems. Do you see yeah. it speeding up? I think I do see it speeding up, particularly when you get labor markets that are 4.64% unemployment. The moment you get a tight labor market like this, it's almost like a great reassessment where people are going, listen, I think a lot of that work that I was doing beforehand, I think it was actually deeply dehumanizing. I think it was actually not really for me. An awful lot of companies, frankly, although they say we value our people, they really wish that all the people were homogenous. The uniqueness of humans, when you peel the onion, becomes really kind of annoying for company. We want to create uniform <laughs> outcomes. We want to create uniform levels of service. Therefore, your uniqueness, what you uniquely love, what you uniquely lean into, where and how you uniquely grow is actually an impediment <laughs> to us yeah. delivering the outcomes that we want. Uh, no, it isn't. The best leaders realize that all great work is done on teams. That's what a team is for. It's for using unique people together to do something together they couldn't do alone. But many, many companies have missed that step. You know, look at hospitals. We don't build hospitals around teams. The nurse supervisor to nurse ratio on average is one to 60. How can those individual 60 nurses feel seen when they have one supervisor to 60 of them? And then we wonder why nurses burn out and have levels of PTSD as high as they do. 
it's an org structure issue that is not very human. Especially during this time. A lot of the work and research you've done, it seems like it's needed even more now. Like the way you talk about performance discussions and how they're ineffective and ratings don't work and people really don't want feedback. If these things don't work, how do they determine who are the employees that get promoted if they're making decisions as a management team or the ones that get a bigger raise? You've identified the real challenge. You've got a lot of really well-intended HR people who are under pressure from CFOs and CEOs to try to give differential levels of compensation, differential levels of investment. In the next three or four years, we'll find this out more than we ever have done. We've created a whole bunch of fake data. Human beings turn out to be horribly unreliable raters of other people. There's this very, very well-known effect. What it basically shows is I'm an idiosyncratic rater of you, Dave. I can't get out of my own way. When I try to rate you on various qualities you may or may not possess, like, say, potential, and then people put sort of behavioral descriptors of what we mean by customer focus, and then there's a five-point scale. What we are thinking we're doing there is creating a window that allows me to really see you so I can rate you. But it turns out that if I rate you on those things and then I rate Megan on those things, my ratings should move because I'm now looking to different people through the window. But it turns out my ratings don't change. It's almost like I can't even see you. It's not really a window. It's a mirror. I'm just bouncing me back at me. I don't even know it, but I'm doing it. It's called the idiosyncratic rater effect. And you Mm -hmm. can't get rid of it. And it means that really when it comes to ratings, all ratings are a reflection of the rater, not the ratee. Now, you might say, well, that's okay. We'll do a 360 because now we'll take Marcus's bad data about Dave. We'll now ask six more Marcus's to rate Dave. So we'll take six more sources of bad data, add it to Marcus's bad data, and then somewhere along the line, it will magically turn into good data. Unfortunately, many, many folks in HR are not data fluent enough. They never showed up to that statistics class, which showed that if you have systematically bad data, like if you've got a thermometer that is broken and you add 10 more broken thermometers to your one broken thermometer, it doesn't make the temperature reading any better. (laughs) Bad data plus bad data plus bad data equals really bad data. That's what a 360 is. CEOs want data. Unfortunately, HR is giving them data that does not measure what it says it measures. That's backwards, that is. The solution turns out to be twofold. One, we need to be much more data fluent in the world of people. What can humans rate? We can rate our own experiences and we can rate our own intentions. That's it. And so if you wanted to see whether or not particular team leaders wanted to invest in a particular person or promote a particular person, the team leader can rate that. I'm not rating you. I'm rating my own intentions toward you. Well, that's not rating you, but boy, it's giving a line of sight to what me, the frontline team leader, would do with you. That's real data. It's not everything, but it is what it says it is, Uh, which is humble but real. And the other thing is you you do actually want to have lots of conversations. That's why we ought to split apart performance development from performance measurement. Performance development should be a frequent one-on-one light touch check-in every week. They want frequent, short-term attention about them and their work for 52 weeks a year. Maybe some of them last five minutes. Frequency Hmm. of attention drives performance development. Performance measurement Yes, first of all, we should get the data source right, which means we should ask team leaders about what they would do and get a number on that. But then we should, frankly, give as much differential compensation money to the frontline team leader and then say, you hand it out. You're closer Hmm. to the action than we are. You've got more intelligence than we are. Have more conversations. If we want to figure out how to differentially compensate Megan versus you, 
we ought to be having a conversation with the manager and asking them what he or she wants to do. And if that takes a little more time, then take a little more time. It's better than relying on the shortcut of fake data, which is where we are now. What are some of the biggest differences between HR today and when you began your research? Now, my grandfather was in HR, my dad was in HR, and a lot of HR personnel, as it was called then, it, it came up through legal, didn't it? It came up through compliance. Unspoken, but quite a lot of HR was designed to protect the company from the employees. <laughs> and we've gradually moved to a world in which HR has to try to answer the question, why do we as a company deserve the best people? You know, I co-head the ADP Research Institute. ADP, as you know, is a HCM payroll company, but passionate about data. So they set up an institute, God bless them, to look at the labor market, which is run by Dr. Neela Richardson, who does the National Employment Report every month. Mm-hmm. And then me, we focus on the micro issues of people and performance. So in this case, the question was basically lots of CHROs going, how are we doing? How are people thinking about HR? God bless my grandfather and my dad. They had no way of answering that question at all, other than some things like, you know, lost work days or number of days to fill an opening or mm-hmm. my budget. But in terms of like, like mm. what's the employee experience of HR? Is there a reliable thermometer for that? It turns out the answer to that question is no. So we set out for the last two years to build a 15 question thermometer that asks team members about their experience of HR. XPS, experience score, that's what it stands for. God, this just blew my mind. But when you actually start measuring people's experience of HR, if they've been really good, you are much more likely to advocate the company as a place to work to friends and family. You are much less likely to be actively interviewing for a new job. And then because we could track this time one to time two inside of the 60,000 people of ADP, we now know that if you have a really bad experience with HR, your HR XPS score is low, you are much more likely to actually have left in three months. So what was exciting for me, having sort of grown up in a family of HR people, my dad's passed away, so has my grandfather. But what I would say to them is that, guys, we finally got a way to walk into a CFO's office or a CEO's office and go, listen, if you're interested in talent brand, your finance department can't address it. Your IT department can't address it. Yes, your team leader is important, but the biggest department otherwise in terms of everything that's emotional and human at work is the HR department. I know you've thought about it as a cost center. I know you've thought about it as a source of friction. And I know you want to try and replace it just with tech and with AI chatbots. But humans are humans are humans. And if you get that right, if you get the human bit of HR right, then all the things, dear CEO, that you want, like really high retention and a really strong talent brand, are much more likely to happen. Well, gosh, that puts HR right in one of the most pivotal driver's seats right now, if a company's interested in wanting to deserve the best people. You had some unique findings in that report. How are you defining talent brand? We just measured it as advocacy. So the question was, how likely would you be to advocate the company as a place to work to friends and family in your community? But we used that as one dependent variable to go, well, that's interesting. We asked two questions about, are you actively looking for a new job? Are you currently interviewing for a new job to measure intent to leave? And then, of course, we could actually see then if you had left. Is there any uh, recommendations you have for HR leaders interpreting this report? What are the levers that we should pull to get higher HR XPS? And a couple of things stood out. One is single point of contact. You are more likely to have a high HR XPS score if you say that there is a person 
or maybe a place, but it's a single point of contact that is my kind of catch-all for HRE questions. Yes, you might have an insurance question, or you might have a leave of absence question, and there may be a call center in Arizona somewhere that you get shuffled off to to answer the insurance question. I think we're fine with that, but we don't want to go there first and only. We recently got divorced, or we had a kid, or my dad just died, and then we got to move, and so the insurance question is tight. You want someone who knows all that about me. Now, we want to go back to 30 years ago of the HR generalist. We want centers of excellence, but clearly we want a quarterback. And if you don't give me a quarterback, I feel unseen. I mean, that's the simplest way to say it. And then the other one that was sort of interesting, the more the better. If you've had seven interactions with HR in the last year, you are much more likely to have a high HR XPS score and a high advocacy for the talent brand, which is interesting because the mega trend in HR is to try to disintermediate HR, to remove HR from the process, you know, employee self-serve. Each interaction seems to be an opportunity to show that employee that we see you and we're there for you. And if you do that well, we employees, we don't want HR to disappear or to be replaced by some pure standalone piece of tech. Hmm. Now, if you're a CHRO, you're like, ah, well, that's annoying because I'm trying to strip cost out of my system. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty surprising result. Sounds like talent brand, the divide between CEOs and HR a lot of the time. And for CEOs, their instinct to go less emotional, maybe more financially driven. We're in a world right now where you've got almost full employment. You have to ask yourself in all sorts of ways why the best people should come to work here. One of the questions you should ask is, how do you let people go? Before you join a company, you should say, how do you let people go? Because at some point, that might be you. The best organizations realize that your value as a human being doesn't stop once you leave the organization, which is why the best organizations have strong alumni associations. Yes, they might lead to greater networks and so on, but also your worth as a human continues beyond us. The best CEOs realize that the moral imperative of a business is to help people grow so that they can contribute more. They're not a mechanism, they're the point. You need to ask about offboarding. How do you offboard people? You at least need to know what you're getting into. The question as ever is just because we can, should we? I think that's a great place for HR to be living right now is to push the CEO to be going, wait a minute, yeah, you could fire 900 people on Zoom. It's so much more efficient, but of course, you're basically saying that these people's morality is irrelevant to you. Business isn't about efficiency. Business is about contribution. Right. Uh, Marcus, what's something that you had as a strongly held belief in HR and talent that you shifted your thinking over time? Neela, who's my co-head, she's an African-American woman. She's obviously had totally different life experiences than I have. And so we were talking the other day about progress in terms of race relations in the workplace. And of course, with the, sort of the lid coming off the social justice movement and the systemic racism that millions of people have felt in the workplace and society in large, we shone a spotlight on it. My thought at the time was that we were far further along than we are on the I part of DE&I. Um, one of the things that Neela was talking to me about is that you can have a lot of D, a lot of diversity that's measurable. We can count it. You can have a lot of E where we can count equity and whether or not you're paid the same. But if you have a lot of D and a lot of E and no I, then it doesn't matter. How do you measure whether or not people feel included? Mm. And I was ashamed to say, having been in the psychometric world for you know 25 years, if someone would have said, are we getting any better at the I? 
the answer to that question is we have no idea. No one knows. Hmm. No one has any idea. Since the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s, we don't know if we're getting any better. We've just built this thermometer for measuring the eye. But at the moment, it's really low. I mean, it's really low. Hmm. The number of people who feel fully connected, seen, heard, and valued for who they fully are at work. And then you actually start asking questions just to rate their own experiences at work in terms of whether they feel they are able to bring their full selves to work, whether they can share differing points of view without fearing retribution. Just some pretty simple questions about whether or not you feel safe at work. The number of people that feel fully connected, whether LGBTQ plus or minority races, is below 20%. Hmm. Now, I don't know if it was worse 15 years ago than it is now, but it's fully 80% of people are feeling some sort of ongoing discrimination and unsafeness at work. And that's disgraceful Mm. and was a huge surprise to me. And I'd like to think that I was empathetic and open hearted and fine. That's all very well. You can be that, Marcus. But you also coming from a position of great privilege. So looking at those data and going, holy moly, we have work to do to ensure that each individual feels seen, valued, etc. I want to bring Megan back into the discussion. We produced this podcast at Keystone in cooperation with NERA. It's the largest Sherm chapter in the Northeast. And we have the NERA question of the podcast, every podcast. Megan? In 2020, Keystone hosted a panel where we examined the emotional toll of COVID-19 and the data around employees increasing desire for their purpose at work. And I know you've talked about that quite a bit as well. And we were wondering what are some ways employees and HR can utilize their strengths to find and develop that purpose? That's one of those threads where when you start to pull on it, Megan, you find yourself in the middle of a huge quilt, don't you? Viktor Frankl probably wrote the best book on purpose, written in the late 1930s called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a concentration camp survivor, and he only managed to survive because he said there were three sources of meaning. One is relational, doing something of contribution to somebody that you love. For him, it was seeing his wife again. He had no idea that when they were immediately separated, by the way, he was the last Jewish marriage uh, allowed in Vienna in 1938. The day after they were married, they were on a train to Auschwitz. He got separated, kept alive because he was a doctor. His wife was immediately killed. He didn't know that. So seeing her, trying to see her again became one of his reasons for keeping a purposeful life. The second one was um, some sort of achievement. They had taken his manuscript from his coat. And so recreating his manuscript after the war became an ongoing purpose for him. And then the last one, which was just super, uh, your response to unavoidable suffering. Your response to unavoidable suffering is a source of meaning to you. So if HR can help people think about their purpose in the context of the relations that they are providing for, other colleagues they're supporting, can you be a source of uplift for your fellow colleagues, even if you're not seeing them, you'd never make the workplace zero. You make it a little better, a little worse every day. Achievement, your source of purpose offers everybody's achievement is different, but what are the things every week that you're trying to make a mark on the world with? But then the last one, which I think some HR departments have done such a good job at and some have really messed up. We want truth. We don't want sugarcoating. All the data that we've looked at in terms of resilience shows that the closer we are to the boogeyman under the bed, the less scary the boogeyman is. HR shouldn't be shielding us from suffering. We don't Mm. want to be mollycoddled. And so if HR can be a source of truth, a source of fact, a source of, oh my word, we didn't realize that, but now X is happening. Like humans don't fear change. 
Humans fear the unknown. That's different. And some HR functions, I think, have done a really good job of going, listen, we're the truth tellers. And from that, counterintuitively, Megan, comes purpose. Now, do they get burnout? out? Do they need some stress recovery, stress recovery? Do they need some oscillation like that? Yes, no question. A lot of our healthcare providers have had no respite. So I'm not saying this is like a cure-all, but certainly humans do really well in terms of purpose when you tell us the truth and you help us to deal with our response to that truth. That's a jolly good thing for us psychologically. So if you could write a letter of a professional career advice to your 25 or 30-year-old self, Marcus, what would you write? <laughs> the first thing I'd say, uh, you are who you surround yourself with. You are who you surround yourself with. You are who, that'd be <laughs> point one. Point number two would be the um, Hippocrates quote of life is short, the art is long, or life is short, the craft is long. Like, don't rush, man. The craft that you're in takes a long time. Don't shortcut it. I don't mean be patient. You could be as impatient as you want, but just know to get really good at anything, it takes time. Allow that time to happen. And the third thing I would say is your career is a scavenger hunt for love, man. And it doesn't have to be huge, massive love once a year. <laughs> it's every day. I used to have panic attacks when I was in my late 20s because it was like you wake up and you're just armored against the world all the time. If you're not careful, you can see the world as the enemy. It's shouting at you all the time. and You sort of have to get through it. If I could get my 29-year-old self to flip his brain around and go, no, no, no. Every day the world is waking up and trying to put on a show for you. And the only enemy for you is distraction. So if I could tell me, I would say, look, every day, try to look for those red threads a little every day because they are there. And if you have days and days and days go by without them, no matter how noble your cause is, you'll burn up from the inside out. What's something interesting about you that we wouldn't find on a bio or an interview, something that you're willing to share? For the first 12 years of my life, I couldn't speak. I had a um, terrible really? crippling, yeah, I had a crippling stammer. So I couldn't say my own name. Marcus Buckingham for a stammer is like a really long name, <laughs> but I, I couldn't speak at all. So it's weird now that I do quite a lot of speaking. <laughs> so I used to think when I was nine and 10 years old, I would never get married because I couldn't say the word marry because M's are really hard if you have a stutter. It's one of those metaphors that you find in your own life where it went away when I was about 13 in a week. Um, and weirdly, what helped for me was one time my silly headmaster in my school made me stand up and read a lesson aloud in chapel. Day off, and I went and did it and turned around and faced the audience. But for no good reason that I can still fully understand, people's eyes on me, the synapses fire differently. And I couldn't speak to you individually, Dave but I could talk to 400 people. It was the weirdest thing. And so wow. for me, it's almost like a strengthy move where you're like, oh, that's an integrating point for me. I'm gonna pretend from now on, when I'm talking to Dave, that I'm talking to 400 people. That's amazing. And, and this is the sort of thing we never teach kids, right? We don't teach you. Your life is sending you signals all the time. Some of them bore you, some of them you loathe, some of you ignore, but some of them, for whatever reason, uh, lift you up. Really interesting. Well, I am so glad that my ADP brother, Michael Hennessy, uh, introduced me to you through Joanna. And thank you so much for being a guest on the Hennessy Report. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Megan, nice to meet you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. 
Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.